Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. As our listeners know, each week on this podcast, we speak with a CEO who we believe is really walking the leadership next walk, making business decisions that impact all stakeholders, not just shareholders. But today, we're mixing things up. Yeah, Ellen, we're going to do something different. In a nod to Election Day, we're going to engage in a hallmark of democracy, debate, Hmm. hopefully civil debate. I'm sure. (laughs) Part of our thesis here is that business is changing, that the best leaders recognize that to motivate their employees, first of all, but also their customers, sometimes their investors, they need a purpose beyond profit. And they need to be willing to address some big social problems like climate change, inequality, racial injustice that they see as potentially existential threats to society and and therefore to their businesses. Uh, Ellen and I both believe this is a thesis that more and more CEOs are adopting all the time, but not everyone agrees with us. That's right. And one of those people is Harvard Law's Lucian Bebchuk. I think the title of his recent paper, which we've all read on this call, will give you a good idea where he stands. It's called The Illusory Promise of Stakeholder Governance. And if you read it, you will be using the term stakeholderism like it's a very bad thing. And because Ellen and I always need all the help we can get, we've also invited Rebecca Henderson to join us. She's a professor at the Harvard Business School, fabulous recent book called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. She spent a lot of time thinking about why it's essential for business to embrace stakeholder capitalism. Let's start with Lucien, because you're outnumbered here, Lucien, so you deserve to go first, (laughs) the three of us. But you make two arguments. One is that all this talk about stakeholder capitalism from companies is just that, empty talk. And two, that even if it were real, it would be a bad idea. I'm going to stick with the first argument first. Why do you believe this is all hot air? Yeah, I believe it's largely cosmetic. And if we keep talking about it and have uh, more interviews and more calls, uh, we should not expect very substantial benefits to stakeholders to follow. And there are two reasons for this. One is that uh, corporate leaders do not have significant incentives to protect stakeholders beyond what would serve shareholder value. They simply don't. Uh, And secondly, uh, we have to look at the evidence and the evidence that colleagues and I have put forward is that in fact, when CEOs and other corporate leaders face choices, they do not give independent way to the interest of stakeholders. One of the other pieces of evidence that you've talked about, and and I'll be honest, this is the part of your argument that really gets my attention because I do worry about it too. I worry that, that the kinds of things that need to happen to fix this broken world need to come from corporate power. And if it's not real, then we're going to be in, in more trouble than we already are. But you said a couple of things, and one of them is that the CEOs who signed the business roundtable letter, for example, didn't even get board approval to sign it, that it wasn't even the thing that they elevated to the point of their boards. Right, right. I think that in the paper, we give several pieces of evidence that indicate that 
the business roundtable statement was largely for show. And we devote a lot of attention to that statement because various people, including some on this call, viewed it as a very significant uh, milestone. As you just mentioned, we conducted a survey. We asked the signatory corporations whether they got approval from their board, which is something that one would expect to get when a decision is significant. Now, following the publication of our results, we got some reactions. For example, the president of the Business Roundtable told the Financial Times that they didn't get board approval or ratification because they've already been doing all this good stuff Mm -hmm. and therefore they did not feel they needed to go to the board. But in the President Business Roundtable's response, actually confirms and concedes our point that the reason why board approval or ratification exposed was not pursued was exactly because the CEOs themselves viewed uh, it as not signaling any change. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We do a regular survey of Fortune 500 CEOs where we ask them First of all, do they agree with the business roundtable statement? Overwhelming support. I think it was uh, around 10% who didn't agree. The vast majority did agree. But then we said, do you think this is something new going on in business or is this the way you've all, always operated business as usual? And two thirds said the way we've always operated. Only one third said something new is going on here. So it sort of reinforces what your research showed. Right. So I think that we can probably agree that the business roundtable uh, statement itself was a non-event. Now, let me just mention quickly some other things that we have found. We reviewed all the board-approved corporate governance guidelines that public companies all have on their website. And we found that companies that are business roundtable statement signatories by and large still have guidelines that are largely reflective of a commitment to show the primacy. Lucina, if it's all right with you, I'm going to ask you to pause for a second because Rebecca is just beaming this smile in the Zoom call here, and I feel the need to bring her in <laughs> to find out what she thinks. Is this is it too soon to call time of death on stakeholder capitalism? Is the BRT statement the be-all, end-all, a beacon to others, or where are you on this? I respectfully disagree with Lucien. I think the BRT statement is indeed quite important. And here I think is the root of the fundamental disagreement between us is Lucien says quite correctly, well, they said this, but they didn't change the rules and they're not changing their behavior. So it doesn't mean anything. Well, not quite. Because I believe that what we might call rhetoric or culture or our understanding of what the goals of the corporation are is super important. And for the last 20, 30 years, we've said the goal of the corporation is to maximize shareholder value, which is a very particular goal. It's not, it's one interpretation of fiduciary duty, but only one. And there are other goals that the corporation could have, and those goals are really important. And I believe that shifting the goals of the corporation would make an enormous difference. I don't think you need to do a wholesale shift in corporate governance in order to do that. 
Yeah. So, Ellen, if I can, I, it feels to me like that's a good segue to the second part of Lucien's argument, which is exactly. even if you could make this real, even if you put metrics around <laughs> it and you put incentives around it and you got people to act on it in some way. If I understand your paper correctly, Lucien, you say that's a bad idea. Why is no, that I, a bad idea? So from my perspective, I don't have any legitimacy issue about if we found some way to make corporate leaders act in the way that economists call, quote unquote, the benevolent dictator, people who would act to maximize the social good, I would say, sure, let's do that and we'll bring society to a better place. My problem is that I find that this would be very, very difficult and challenging and the proposals on the table are just not going to do it. And in my view, we don't have any good reason to expect them to use their discretion to benefit stakeholders. Uh, yeah, but Lu Luzian, wait, wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, let, but, sure. but you do argue in your paper that if companies actually began to pay more attention, had the incentives to pay more attention to stakeholder needs, that it would be a bad idea because they'd take their eye off the ball, they'd be less accountable to shareholders and they, therefore they'd perform less well. If we could find a system of food that would make corporations improve social value better, I would all be for it. What I'm saying when I'm worried about the loss of accountability and the insulation is because I think that those would create slack and underperformance without actually delivering countervailing and offsetting benefits. I think for me, Lucia makes a very important point, which is we cannot expect business leaders to do good without the incentive to do good. I completely agree. I have 25 years of corporate board experience. Is the CEO going to say, oh, I'm just going to give up my pay or give up a chunk of money and give it to the workers for no reason except it's good for the world? No. But I think the debate is more interesting than this. I believe there's an important class of actions which benefit both the firm and stakeholders that many firms have not focused on because they've been so focused on shareholder value that they've not taken a longer term perspective, have not thought more broadly. We could think of this as instrumental stakeholderism. That is, I'm being stakeholder oriented, but don't worry shareholders, I'm going to make you a bunch of money. And those firms that have started down this road have some metrics that they think really give them a sense of the well-being of the workforce or the uh, reductions in environmental damage in their supply chain, and they're tracking those metrics. And they think that those metrics are giving them a route to profitability that they didn't have before. And they also think that embracing purpose, saying, I want to have a broader purpose, let's be purely instrumental, is a better way to run the railroad. I think that's actually super important. That's exactly what pretty much every CEO who has been on this podcast for the last year says, that there's a world of win-win solutions out there. And what we're talking about is just focusing more consciously on taking those win-win solutions. And I should say, both of you have referred to this, a lot of it has to do with time frame. I mean, I sat in the C-suite of Time Inc. in its final days, and I saw the decisions that were made when you're faced with a shareholder activist who's trying to get quarterly results, 
that were clearly not in the interest, the long-term interests of the company, much less the interests of the employees or society or uh, any definition of stakeholder that you want to choose. So we all know this happens. And time frame, if you can somehow get companies to focus on the longer term, a lot of times the stake shareholder concerns and stakeholder concerns tend to converge. Can I, uh, Ellen, may I, may I offer a, a reaction to this? I want to comment that there is something kind of, to me, as an academic, puzzling about what we on this call and many investors around the world are saying with respect to this issue. The assumption that underlies the discussion is the corporate leaders have not noticed that this is important for their maximizing value. Right. On everything else, People defer to corporate leaders. They say, <laughs> you know, who are we academics or investors to know we should just give them the right compensation and some discretion and we count on them. We never try to figure out what's the best marketing plan for them and tell them, look, you have to get a good brand or we need to do this or we need to do that. Suddenly, with respect to stakeholder capitalism, there is a whole discussion that assumes the corporate leaders to whom we defer on everything else, here they're kind of blind <laughs> to the effects of neglecting stakeholders on shareholder value. Now, I understand this discussion. It makes perfect sense if the managers are short-term buyers, but the solution for that is to give them long-term incentives. Rebecca, I want to get you in on this because it's between the binary of they know everything or they know nothing is the sort of, but they're also psychopaths that won't do anything unless we pay them. Right. <laughs> is so there, is there a better way to think about leadership now? So Ellen, thank you. I mean, Lucia is making a fundamentally important point, but I think there is, to me, a very satisfactory answer. And it is this. Leaders of major corporations are bad at seeing discontinuous changes in their environment. We spend our lives telling corporate leaders that digitization is coming, that globalization is a big deal, that you need to respond. Um, the way I think about this is in terms of 20 years of research as the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management. I spent the first 20 years of my career working with firms like Kodak, trying to persuade them that the world was changing. I spent six months with Nokia in Finland, in saunas in the middle of February, <laughs> trying to persuade them that Apple was really a threat to their business. And what did they say? They said, we're selling a million phones a week. You know, simmer down, Rebecca. It's going to be fine. We know that there are real cognitive and institutional barriers to doing things differently. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's inertia. You know, I remember once describing my research to a taxi driver and he said, you spent a year and a half and $100,000 to discover that big firms get stuck in their ways. I mean, can I have a PhD from Harvard for that? <laughs> I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Something big seems to be going on in the world of business. There's a shift from a focus on shareholders to a focus on stakeholders. I'm hearing this everywhere. Why is it happening? 
This is a realization that if you effectively serve a broad cross-section of stakeholders, that's actually conducive to generating a premium return for shareholders. This is not an either-or. Maybe in the short term, one could prioritize profits at the expense of other constituents, but in the long term, you have to align those interests to deliver premium shareholder returns consistently. A lot of people I talk to want to know, is this real or is this just a public relations act? exercise. This is being built into the core of leading companies' strategies, and you're seeing the landscape shift drastically. Just in the last few months, views from leading investors around the way in which this is driving capital allocation decisions, very tangible climate commitments from many large organizations, and a very significant interest from our employee base around their desire to make certain that the organization they work for aligns with their values. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. We are in a time of amazing change. I checked these numbers just a few minutes ago. 248 of the 500 companies that were on the Fortune 500 list in the year 2000 are no longer there. So this is not a time of complacency. This is a time of enormous upheaval. And what we're finding on this podcast is that the best companies, the companies that are performing best are the ones that are taking a longer term view and focusing on their employees and focusing on their commitment to society because they find it helps motivate their talent, which has become ever more important in the corporate balance sheet and because it it helps them gain employers and it's starting to even help them gain investors. So can I jump in on that real quick? I just want to add on to this because I think this is an important point. Not only that, we've been holding meetings with CEOs, part of our CEO initiative since the quarantine happened. These have been humbling calls. This has been a time for courageous leadership. This has been a time to put out big personal statements and align them to what the business is actually doing and investing in. And so we're seeing what I'm clearly seeing is a more courageous, more moral leader who is willing to, to speak in plain language about how they may have failed to see things in the past, or this is an opportunity to make society more sustainable, because we're in the middle of a pandemic and a reckoning on race. It is not going to go away. So that kind of person is emerging too. Can I uh, just uh, I'll focus on some reactions? Uh, so one, about what Rebecca now convincingly said some people might be blind to this or that and we have to explain it to them. I think we should distinguish for the purpose of this large debate between stakeholderism as a managerial theory and stakeholderism as a normative ideal. I have no problem if in the same way that maybe some corporate leaders have not understood the importance of the internet or maybe inventory management. That's, however, very different from big part of the debate, which comes out from kind of goes beyond the managerial discussion, what's the best way to run things, goes into the normative dimension, which makes it very interesting. This is something that I'm sure when you go out to various places, you see many people are interested in this because they're interested in this as a normative question. They're not interested in what's the optimal way to manage the company. Second, I just want to put it on the table. The view that lots of stuff is win-win certainly is right. But one thing that we emphasize in our paper is that a lot of stuff 
is not win-win. And in fact, many of the things that people who care about stakeholders are worried about is not going to be remedied if we move to a world in which corporate leaders would fully understand all those managerial effects and they all will go to executive education courses taught by Rebecca and they will fully <laughs> internalize it. So even if we get them <laughs> to do each and every stakeholder benefiting decision that is win-win, stakeholders in today's world on many dimensions would still suffer from problems that we as a society need to address. Why? Because it is the case in economics that there are real trade-offs. Not everything in economics is win-win. So, yes, but that doesn't mean that business should not be moving on some of these problems. There is a collective action problem here. Business as a whole, I believe, will certainly be worse off if we let the icebergs melt, if we drive the marginal cost of labor to way below a living wage, if we destroy our institutions by flooding politics with money. But collectively, that is not good for business. So we have a collective action problem. Let's take climate change. Absolutely agree. You can get maybe half the way on win-win, but the rest, you need government policy or you need collective self-restraint. And so for me, one of the important things about talking about purpose and changing the model of leadership to get back to Ellen's point, which I think is so key, is to begin to think, how do we act together as a community to address these issues? And to go back to the question of Black Lives Matter and inclusion, I think there's an increasing sense that, yes, there's a business case for reaching out to people of color. And yes, we need consumers and employees and, and of people of color. But you know what? It's just wrong. And, and we're not going to do that anymore. We, we're just not going to do it. And I think the rediscovery of a moral voice, which is, of course, sometimes just greenwashing and bullshit, but sometimes is a way of saying, okay, everybody, let's move together. Right. And if we had the right metrics, we could enforce that kind of collective movement. And I believe that investors have, again, on aggregate, a strong business case for moving in this direction. And so if we can persuade the investors to also double down on this, we could make real progress. So I think that's an important part of what's going on. There's another piece of this that's that's implicit in what you just said, Rebecca, and in what you said as well, Lucien. As a journalist who has watched this develop over the last decade, no question a big part of what is going on is a sense of the failure of government. Yes, we right. may have once thought of these as government issues, but government, particularly in the US and many parts of Europe, has failed to successfully address them. I mean, we saw at Fortune a big increase in interest in this in 2016 when the Brexit vote happened. And then shortly after that, you had this crazy election in the United States with Donald Trump on one side and what looked like all the, the momentum on the other side was Bernie Sanders, a self-declared socialist. And business leaders were saying, wait a minute, what's happened to the world we grew up in? So I do think a substantial part of businesses stepping up is a response to government failing to step up. And in an abstract world, Lucian, maybe that's not the right way for things to happen, but they kind of threw up their hands and say, what can we do about it? We got to do this because somebody has to do it. On government failure, I think part of, and everybody agrees that 
part of the demand for stakeholder capitalism is dissatisfaction about how much government has done. Part of the problems have to do with lobbying and political spending by corporate leaders themselves. So there is a little bit of at least a tension in the hope that some people are mentioning, like because corporate leaders using in part the massive resources at their control are preventing government from adopting some laws, but maybe the claim by business leaders that they are going to take care of the problems on their own is part of the same effort to prevent government from doing it, because part of the effort to prevent government is sheer lobbying and political spending, but part of it is creating an atmosphere that, look, government with its tough hand and intrusive regulation shouldn't do it because there is private ordering and enlightened corporate leaders on the way, and let's wait 10 or 20 years and they'll fully or substantially address climate change. And by then, it might be too late. When I was trying to sell my book, Lucien, one of the top publishers in New York looked at me and said, Rebecca, you have to be kidding. Business saves the world. Don't you read the papers? You know, exactly your argument. And it's the argument I get from my colleagues in sociology and government all the time. But here's the issue. I believe that the most important collective action that these purpose-driven CEOs can take is to rebuild government, is to mm. rebuild the institutions. That the collective action we most need is the agreement to pull money out of politics and to invest in civics. I mean, I, I think that that's the whole game, is otherwise we haven't got where we need to go. And that as purpose business leaders move forward, they discover they can't do it on their own. They rediscover government. They rediscover the importance of democracy. And, and Lucy, okay. maybe that's a suggestion for the next line of research for you guys to take on, because I know from talking to the folks at the Business Roundtable that their adoption of this stakeholder purpose for the corporation has caused some real serious thinking inside the organization because they are a lobbying organization. They're the ones who are doing a lot of the lobbying that you've talked about. And they have now forced themselves to put their own actions through a stakeholder lens. And it's caused some really interesting conversations to take place. And, and maybe one way to test whether what they say has any reality to it is to see if you can notice a difference in the way they lobby yeah. after last August compared to before last August. I think that would be the real test of whether the Business Roundtable stakeholder uh, statement has meaning. I agree. Lucien, what do you think? Yeah, sure. I'm, as you uh, guys can tell, I'm the person who shares your views, but unfortunately feels like it's my little job in this podcast is to pour <laughs> some realistic cold water on the hopes and optimism that you guys have. So part of what I was pressing is, let's look at real data and evidence. And what we should do is look at what people do, as you were now suggesting, rather than what people say. I'm sure that all those great CEOs who come to the podcast are well-intentioned and sincere, but it might be that you are getting too optimistic set of expectations from those conversations. And indeed, testing 
whether they spend less on political spending or even let's even not go as far whether they are willing to have corporate spending disclosed yeah. that might be an interesting test yeah. until quite recently corporate america was strongly against disclosure of political spending certainly against any uh, restrictions so that yeah. would be one test yeah. Ellen, I fear that we have sort of, through this debate, gotten closer and closer to agreement. And I worry if we let it go on any longer, we may actually all agree, <laughs> which would be so out of keeping with the nature of today's debates that I worry about this, <laughs> the social impact. Rebecca, do you, do you want to give us a final word? And then Ellen, uh, uh, you can wrap it up. Sure. So two things. First, I recently wrote the foreword for the just published Zicklin Index for 2020, which is published by the Center for Political Accountability and is all about trying to persuade firms to completely reveal their political spending, not only at the federal level, but also at state and local levels. So I am in complete agreement that we need to measure these things and we need transparency. But I am not willing to give up on the idea that having purpose-driven CEOs can make an enormous difference. Sometimes people accuse me of being optimistic. I am not optimistic. I think our situation is desperate. I really do. It's not that I think, oh, having purpose-driven CEOs, easy fix, we're get, they're going to remake government, we're done. I think, whoa, what are we going to do? And I think this is a potential path forward. I absolutely agree it's not guaranteed. I absolutely agree that business will do what business does, but trying to persuade it to act differently, trying to support and encourage those CEOs who see a different vision and those investors who see that too, I think it's really important. Well, that was amazing. Thank you both very much. We definitely need a part two of this podcast because it was such an important conversation and a great way to approach it. I appreciate all of you very much. And Rebecca, yes, you are right. That was the perfect way to end. We can all agree on the fierce urgency of now, right now, and that we need to keep talking if we're going to get anywhere good together. Thank you both for joining us on Leadership Next. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 